Hello, listeners. Back to school season's coming up, which we know can be difficult for those going through a divorce. And this is especially true when alcohol and child safety is a concern. You know that on Divorce and Beyond, my mission includes bringing you the latest insider knowledge and information from top experts with regard to your divorce, especially during these changing times. That's why I've partnered with Soberlink to help create and offer resources to help you navigate the upcoming back-to-school season. Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology which was created to help prove sobriety in custody cases. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition that allows you to receive real-time updates from monitored co-parents anytime, anywhere allowing for swift intervention for improved child safety. They've helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time for peace of mind in child custody cases. Soberlink is currently offering free back-to-school and divorce packets that include an expert Q&A with me, back-to-school checklist, communication tips, and more. You can request your free packet today at www.soberlink.com backslash Susan. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. You know, no matter what you're going through, you know, persevere, you just have to keep chipping away at it. And, and that's very much what I did. And I was successful in protecting my children um, because I, you know, really held on to what was in their best interest and I refused to settle. Hello and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today I'm rejoined by one of our wonderful guests and experts. Um, I reached out to Tina Swithin recently when I saw on her Instagram feed that she had reissued um, her wonderful book, Divorcing a Narcissist, One Mom's Battle, with updates. And she very kindly, you would not believe her crazy schedule. She just was filling me in on some of the things, but she graciously is sitting there in California right now at the crack of dawn recording this episode with me. And I'm thrilled to do it. I was just telling um, Tina how I, I just read the book twice, um, the reissue. She was kind enough to send me a copy. And it's just required reading. It's required reading for anyone going through divorce, any divorce professional. And if you are out there and when you hear this interview and you resonate with some of the things that Tina is going to say or some of the things that you are going to hear me talk about from this book, go get the book. I'm not usually so strong on making a commercial about something, but I'm going to do that here because I truly think it's important. So, you know, Tina, first off, just thank you very much for all the work that you do and for taking the time to come on the show to talk about it. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to, you know, have your platform and to talk through these issues because they're so important. I wish these things were being talked about you know, 13 years ago when I started my journey. And I'm I'm so grateful that this is a topic that is out there now and that we're starting to dissect. It's critical. It it's, I mean, the there's still so much more work to be done, but honestly, what you have done with One Mo Mom's Battle and all of your both advocacy work and educational work and now training professionals to help people and support people who find themselves in this space, tr truly, you personally have moved the, you know, just the support of people going through this and awareness of the issue 
forward immensely. So you are a hero in this space, and I'm, I'm very grateful to you for taking the time and for all that you do. Um, for those who don't know Tina, I'm not sure, you know, if you listen to my podcast, you probably already do. She was on um, last November um, during Family Court Awareness Month, which you founded. <laughs> Um, but in an, in an art or in an episode number 206 entitled how one mom's battle is changing the face of high conflict divorce. Great episode, good starter episode. Go listen to that one. But today, Tina, I really wanted to, I was trying to think about how best to highlight the value of the book and of your work and of your journey so that others can learn from it because I very um, I'm very passionate that people can learn from other people's experiences. Um, so what I did is I, I told you, I have eight pages of notes from your book. <laughs> and so we'd be talking for about eight, 10 hours on a podcast episode, which might be a little long. I know Mark Marin does two hour episodes, but I don't know if anyone would listen to our eight to 10 hour episode. Um, but I'm going to highlight a few things. And I just love to talk to you about some of the, some, and, and everyone understand, this is a small portion of what I think uh, people can take away, but there, there were just things that really struck me. So if it's okay with you, I'm just going to give you some quotes from the book and then ask you for some of your insights about that topic. Absolutely. So the very first one I, I wanted to start with, it comes early. Well, first, let's start with why you issued a reissue, why you felt the need. I know because it's in the um, in the preamble to the book that yeah. you wrote, but I'd like for you to share with everyone because I think it's an important uh, reason to do it. It wasn't just that maybe the world has changed or uh, things have advanced. You had a very solid reason for writing a reissue. Yeah, it's actually twofold. Number one, I feel more comfortable speaking openly about what we were put through in the family court system, um, not only myself, but my daughters. Uh, now that my story has ended, or in the family court system anyway, um, I feel that I can speak more openly without repercussions um, because I was so careful. I never wanted to say anything that could have an effect on my case um, or my daughter's. And number two, you know, there were a couple of components to our story, the family court case, but then that also um, dovetailed with a criminal court trial um, that, you know, we would have never been a part of had my, my, had my voice been heard in the court system. And so I wanted to um, really finalize the story because when I first issued the book back in 2012, my story was still ongoing. My, my children were still being subjected to visits or parenting time with our abuser. And so, you know, if I, I want to give people hope that, you know, no matter what you're going through, you know, persevere, you just have to keep chipping away at it. And, and that's very much what I did. And I was successful in protecting my children um, because I, you know, really held on to what was in their best interest and I refused to settle. Yeah. It's so important, everything that you just said. And I do want to emphasize your story rather unbelievably has a happy ending or a positive ending. And, you know, for those um, who are just learning about Tina's journey, you know, 10-year battle with, um, I don't know if he was ever diagnosed um, clinically, but someone who clearly has personality disordered, uh, be, you know, behaviors and uh, an abuser is, is an appropriate term for it. Um, and you represented yourself almost entirely throughout your 10-year journey through court. And in the end, your ex-husband, your, your children's biological father, his parental rights were actually terminated, which is, as an attorney, I have to tell you, mind blown. I mean, literally mind blown. <laughs> um, and your husband now has been able to, was able to adopt your daughters and is their father. And you know, that's about as happy an ending as one of these stories could ever have. So that's in and of itself a great reason to read the book. 
your there are so many lessons to be learned in your journey and that's what i'm i'm going to highlight now because one key takeaway and i think i think this is important for both those going through the experience but also for court professionals to hear this it only takes one person to create a high conflict case and you know that better than anyone it was one of the things that i struggled with from day 1 is that you're automatically lumped into this high conflict category and and i see how it happens. We're dealing with a court system that is not educated on even the basic dynamics of domestic violence. And then you add in these additional layers and these individuals can muddy the water so much that you do both appear to be part of the problem. And because the, the court system is so overburdened with their caseloads and they're just moving people in, um, they become business transactions to the court. And the, the easy or, in my opinion, lazy way <laughs> to um, it, that you just both become labeled high conflict. And um, that was something I really struggled with because for anyone who knows me, if you're upset with me, I will be awake at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., consumed by that. Um, I'm conflict avoidant by nature. And most of the individuals that I talk to that I help through these things would be described the same way. When your truth is so important, who you are, um, I know for myself to be put in that high conflict label was painful. And um, and you feel so desperate because as soon as that label is put on your case, um, that's it's hard to get out of that. That really becomes the the focus is these two people can't put their children first and and do what's best for them. And that's absolutely not true. When you are dealing with this type of high conflict personality, they are. Um, driven by revenge, um, they their need to win, and they will stop at nothing. And and you're left trying to choose your battles wisely, trying to figure out where do I defend myself, what do I just let go. But like so many others, I found that the abuse that I suffered from him post separation was more painful than what was actually happening during my marriage. And I thought that was horrific. So it's, it's a, a very difficult dynamic to find yourself in when you're being labeled high conflict, but you know, that's not your truth. Yeah. You just want to get away from the whole situation, but keep getting dragged back either because they file something or something they do is so egregious that you absolutely have to do something about it. It comes in both directions. And I I can say, you know, as a, a divorce attorney going into court, you would see the court clerk coming in to with the judge's cases for the day with all the files. And most files are like this. You know, they're little, for those who can't see me, I'm holding up like not even an inch, right? They're small. Then there are cases which I suspect are like yours that, right, boxes, that because so much has been filed, so much paperwork, and immediately those of us in the courtroom who are in the field, or you know, our divorce professionals start thinking, oh, there's one of those cases, right? And you get colored by that. And it's not until you're actually educated in the dynamics of a high conflict divorce case that you realize, yes, sometimes high conflict personalities are on both sides. Yeah. But I would say more often, it's one person who's the high conflict personality and the other person who is just swimming in trying to just deal with the barrage. I mean, it's overwhelming really what comes at you. Yeah. You end up operating in survival mode and, and a sense of desperation. And, and then you don't always present well in those situations when it's so stacked against you. You know, I know for myself, um, being self-represented, acting as my own attorney, um, and and walking into a system that I had never, 
I, I knew nothing about. I walked in with this naive belief that we were just going to look at the facts and that my kids would be safe and we would all go on our merry way and everything that, you know, the dynamics that took place during our marriage me being the 99% parent would just carry over. And, you know, it's, it's a gut punch to see the reality of what happens when you walk through those doors. Right. Well, and the tool goes to my, the tool that an abuser will use are your children. And that's the next quote I have. An abuser will fight for custody of the children to maintain power and control. The abuser knows that using the children is the ultimate way to hurt the healthy parent. And your case is very clear. I mean, it's it's just incredibly clear that, that that's what your children were. They were the pawns. Um, but it's also what kept you I think focused on the fight. It be, it's very clear in reading, you know, that as much as this was overwhelming and exhausting for you, your mama bear was in full force and you, you just, I don't know where you found the strength, but you did um, to keep coming back for 10 years. Yeah. You know, lots of coffee and lots of late nights and, uh, you know, it's I, it recently my daughters heard an old home video and in my voice, they they said, you know, you sound like a, a radio talk show person who has that thick, raspy voice. And and I was thinking, yeah, I was in survival mode. I wasn't sleeping. I, you know, nature intended for me to protect my children. And you're walking into this archaic arena that prioritizes someone's parental rights over your child's rights to safety. And I couldn't accept that that was our final destination. You know, I just every, and it wasn't to say I didn't have pity parties. There were times I thought I can't do this another day. It's going to destroy me. And then you have your pity party and you dust yourself off and you have to try again because if you don't, you know, your kids are dependent on you to protect them. Ultimately, you were able to do that. But I think one of the enduring messages of your book is just how difficult that was to do within the family court system that we live with today, even today. And, and we're starting to make some changes. But there is a lack of knowledge um, among judges, advocates in court, in fact, some of the professionals that you dealt with who were the very people who were charged with protecting your children's best interests, I'm going to say were either uneducated as to what they were dealing with or unfortunately were not competent to be dealing with what they were dealing with. Yeah. Um, you know, and that had to also be incredibly frustrating and scary. Terrifying because you're, and, and I don't think it truly clicked for me until about the, the two year mark that, and, and that only came as a result of starting to sit in the courtroom and watch proceedings and, and the radical acceptance that comes with, you know, absorbing that you are truly just a case number to a lot of these people and and that this is just a day's work for them but these are your babies and so for me it was the radical acceptance of i have to learn this system i have to um play nice with these people while trying to maintain my boundaries and have my voice heard and um those were some of the most challenging because you know, they they refuse or aren't educated enough on these issues to see what was so clear to me. And unfortunately, I believe in this system, um, there are so many parents that are uninvolved or, you know, completely have checked out that they, you know, the the thought of two parents are better than one no matter what becomes the guiding light for them. 
And so a parent with a pulse (laughs) is a great parent and gets a standing ovation. And going back to what you said, you know, this wasn't about the kids for him. This was about how to control me, how to hurt me. He knew that was the number one way to do it. So his motives were not honorable, but he presented well enough to them that they believed they were. Well, and that's one of the issues, honestly, especially with narcissists, Um, that particular personality disorder, you may have had, you may with your ex have some elements of antisocial personality disorder too, certainly looks like it. I'm not a therapist, anyone I'm not diagnosing, but man, (laughs) seems textbook. Um, But they do present well, you know, often in court, they know exactly how to clean up. In fact, by the way, he enticed you into marrying him. Absolutely. Right. He sucked you into thinking he was Prince Charming. They're good at this stuff. You talk about in the book, love bombing and your red flags were flying left and right. In fact, you said um, just before you got married, obviously, this was more than one red flag. There were red flags of every color whipping in the Maui breeze. Yet I still chose to marry Seth that day. Right. That's another one of those quotes that I had there. And so you know, as much as we can ignore the red flags of our narcissists and abusers, the court system will as well in many cases until there's just no way to ignore them anymore. Right. And, and I think, so I recently heard Dr. Romani, for those of you who yes. don't know her, look her up. Um, she said that some of the most dangerous words in existence are benefit of the doubt. And yeah. that is, What I, you know, in reflection, if I could sum it all up, you know, I was projecting my own positive qualities and traits on someone who was undeserving of that projection. And I was giving the benefit of the doubt over and over again, because I had never encountered this type of person. And I think that's what the court does a lot is benefit of the doubt, you know, and that's where, you know, in my opinion, they need to pay attention to actions versus words. Um, Those are usually not in alignment. (laughs) So, right. Well, except the other thing that they do, and your ex-husband certainly did this, you know, to the extreme is they lie. Yeah. Um, Right. They come into a courtroom, they look a judge in the face and they blatantly lie. And you, yay, mama bear, (laughs) actually caught him out in court and were able to show I got to that part of the book and I was literally like, woo, 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 you know, (laughs) because you had the GPS tracking. And so he sunk himself, right? I just want to talk about this because it's a highlight. And and one of those moments, although I'll talk in a minute about it didn't have the final effect. You had years and years more to go. But he went into court told the court an entire fairy tale about where he had been with the kids and where the, what they had done. And then you piped up and had the GPS records from your girl's phone that showed none of what he had just said to the judge, to the judge's face in open court under oath was true. Right. If you could tell that story, I just love that. Yes. You know, and the thing is, there was no reason for him to lie, but it was just a, a, a game mind games that he liked to play on me. But in that specific incident, there wasn't even a reason for him to lie about where the kids were. Um, Had he told the truth, the court wouldn't have cared. I cared where my kids were that weekend, um, which is why I was tracking them. There had been court orders in place that prohibited his brother from being around the children at certain times, at certain junctures. And, um, On that particular weekend, I had been GPS tracking my kids through this little flip phone that no one knew that they knew they had a flip phone. They didn't know that I was GPS tracking. And for me, it was peace of mind um, not knowing where my kids were because the game he played was taking them to all different places 
whether it was hotels, friends, family, I never knew where the girls were. And I had a difficult time going to sleep at night, not knowing where my kids were. And so this particular weekend, he had taken them four hours away from where he claimed they were going to be. Um, And so in court, the judge had him. I, I was saying, it's not true. What he has said in this declaration is false. The judge had him walk through the entire weekend, really went into detail, you know, 9 a.m. Saturday morning, you woke up, where did you go? What did you do? He painted this beautiful flowery picture of their whole weekend together. And I sat there in disbelief as I heard him spin this tale. And the judge said, this is he said, she said, does anyone have proof And I raised my hand and I said, actually, your honor, I do. I have GPS. And they were able to go through minors counsel and the judge and determine that it was a huge lie. And it was ultimately one that cost him overnight visits permanently. So that day, because of that, I received sole legal and physical custody and overnight visits were taken away. So it was a huge moment. You know, when I talk about chipping away, there's, you know, I don't, I don't think it's common for anybody to have this huge moment that just, you know, stops everything. It, for me, what I learned over the years is it's just slowly you know, chipping away at it. And that was a huge chip that came off. That was like a big chunk, but very key thing to note. Some people might think, hey, you caught him lying blatantly to the court and proved it without a doubt that it was every inch of the lie. It's all going to go your way now. No. And that was only a few years in. It was a 10 year battle, right? Yes. Yeah. It, it, helped, you know, what it did was there were multiple occasions where the judge would say, um, Mr. So-and-so has lost credibility in my courtroom. He has openly lied and credibility. It should have more weight than it does. But in those situations, when you were, I, I think the key for me was catching him lying to the judge. That's where it seemed to you know, I, I could say for the four years leading up to that, that he was lying, he was lying, but actually having the judge witness it and, and be personally lied to that really seemed to turn things. So did his credibility um, really get shut down that day? Yeah. When there were things that came up after that, that were, he said, she said, I was definitely given more of a platform to speak. So it did help. But was that the end all be all? No, definitely not. Hello, listeners. So I'm here with a blatant ask and a chance for us all to do some good. We are so excited because the show is growing every week and we're thrilled to be reaching more and more people who need help as they journey through their divorce and beyond. We know one of the best ways for people to continue to find the show is through your recommendations and reviews. So if you would, we would be ever so grateful if you would take a moment and leave us a five-star rating and tell us in a review why you love the show. For all the reviews left on Apple Podcasts in August and September 2022, we will be making a donation to Rainbows for All Children, which is an amazing charity that supports children experiencing grief of all kinds through facilitated peer groups within their communities. You can get more information about Rainbows at rainbows.org. And thank you so much. Stay tuned for more from the inspirational Tina Swithin, who shares more from her 10-year journey to protect herself and her daughters from an abusive ex-husband and her mission to help other women do the same. I'm really big on profiling the person that you're up against, almost like the FBI profiles a criminal and gives us a full report what this person is like. And, and, you know, that is very much what you have to do. And we can all talk in general terms about narcissism or sociopathy or whatever it is that you're up against. But 
they have their individual patterns and triggers and wounds that are what is driving them in this. If you're enjoying this week's episode, be sure to check out last week's show with divorce coach and former investigative journalist, Amy Palacco, who shares what you need to know about the tricks and traps that toxic people use to snare you into their web. You know, I remember at one point, you know, one of my family members saying like, well, why are you wasting all your time reading these books about narcissism? It's part of the healing process because, you know, listening to your podcast or watching a YouTube video from someone who's been through it or is an expert on this, you realize you're not alone and it gives you that strength to see it for what it is. And now we return to today's show. The next quote that I'm going to throw out kind of talks about this. One of the most painful pills to swallow in family courts, that it's not what you know, it's what, excuse me, what you can prove. This is why the narcissist thrives on the stage of the family court system. The narcissist is conniving, manipulative, and highly skilled at deception. And that is, that sums it all up right there. It's not, we go into court thinking that everything is gonna be oh so obvious and people don't realize that in a courtroom, it's not just what you say, it's what you can prove. And in that moment with the GPS, you could prove it. And But that that makes you like a top 1% case. Most of the time it is he said, she said, or she said, she said, he said, he said, but it still um, comes down to uh, two people just having different stories in a judge's eyes. Right. And I try to remind people that, you know, in defense of the court, they don't know either of you. And for all they know, I could have been a pathological liar. For all they know, I could have been the problem and everything he was saying was true. And and that realization started to really sink in for me when I was watching court proceedings. And if I was watching a case where I didn't know either party, I had a certain you know, sense of compassion for the judge, because there were times I would watch a case play out. And I would think to myself, well, I I understand why the judge made that decision of 50-50 custody, um, because I couldn't tell who the, the honest person was. And I think sometimes in the court's mind, They go, well, at least the child's going to have 50% of a chance to turn out okay. You know, we can't tell because there's no proof and their hands are tied by that. You know, there's been, there were many times that I've seen my judge, you know, have this look on his face that I could tell he wanted to do more. He wanted to protect my kids, but, you know, their hands are tied by the law. He had to have proof um, not just speculation or or my word, and and when I wasn't able to provide that, um, it was I had to start thinking outside of the box. You know, I hired PIs, I you know did the GPS and those things. Um, I couldn't afford an attorney, but I put my money towards PIs, and in my case, that was helpful at at certain junctures. Right. Well, you were able to. There was another incident. Your ex, um, I would say, based at least on what I read in the book, had an issue with alcohol, um, a serious issue with alcohol, and so was under orders not to be drinking um, when the children were in his care, your daughters were in his care and custody. And then there was an incident where they, your daughters mentioned to you that daddy was drinking beer or something like that, and you were actually able to get footage from the restaurant. <laughs> Of the fact that not only your ex, but his family, and and we could do an entire episode on the flying monkeys of his family, um, and maybe should. Uh, But so that ongoing proof in that your tenacity and creativity in bringing continual, you know, uh, items of proof to the court until finally you just had enough, I think, where no judge could look out at this mountain um, and and say, you know, no, I'm still seeing that there's, you know, parity on both sides here. But another thing that you were struggling with, and I think this is important for people to hear out there who are going through this, um, 
is is about your daughters, you know, and there's there was one quote that jumped out at me because I know this is so common. My extremely sweet little girls were acting out and it was painful. I knew in my heart this was because I was the safe parent. Yeah. And I'd love for you to explain that paradigm because it it's so common. Yeah. You know, they're little angels at one parent's house and they come home and they're little terrors right. or just having issues. Um, and it actually is a sign that they feel comfortable and safe with, with you. But many parents, you know, struggle with this. Right. I had to, you know, in so many topics, um, I had to shift my thinking, see things in from different um, angles. And one of those things were how my children were when they came home. And I used to describe it as little pressure cookers. You know, they were bottling everything up at his house. And then when I would get them back on Monday, I didn't even recognize who my daughters were, um, you know, and it would take two to three days to decompress and get them back to a centered, regulated spot. And then it would start all over again. So you're on this constant roller coaster. And so the way I had to start looking at it is it, it's a blessing in some weird, twisted way that I am dealing with that when they come back because. I knew from living with this person for so many years that I didn't feel safe emoting and expressing my feelings and I had no voice. Um, and how would I expect these two little girls um, to be able to do that? And, and they knew if they cried, um, there would be retaliation. He couldn't handle emotions. So they were pressure cookers. They were bottling everything up. They would come home and we had to have a 24-hour decompression period where I just allowed them to emote and to express themselves in safe ways. You know, we we would talk about emotions a lot, um, you know, so they could label how they were feeling other than just feeling completely chaotic and disoriented, you know, helping them to connect those dots and 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 just giving them space to decompress. And when they were ready to come back around, um, you know, and it, so it is an honor and a privilege in some ways uh, to be that parent for them. And um, yeah, it's, and, and we had really great therapists along the way who helped me to see these things um, from different angles. And, and once you understand those dynamics, you know, I, as a 34 year old woman, I didn't feel safe expressing myself to him. How, how do I expect them to? And so, yeah, that, that was a journey in itself for sure. Right. Well, and I, I, I think talking about it and, and bringing awareness to that sort of that paradigm of, of how that happens, because it's so common yeah. in these situations when children are, you know, going to a, a home with a parent they don't feel safe with, that they become, you know, perfect children in that household because that's a coping mechanism. And then when they get back into a safe environment, all hell breaks loose right, in right. some ways, emotionally, all, all different kinds of ways. Um, and I do want to point out something you just said. It, it appears, at least from reading the book, that for a great deal of this time, your your daughters did have therapeutic help. They did have a therapist to talk to and another safe space to process their emotions and, and discuss things. And and that that therapist was also a resource in your um, because that not only to help you in helping your children deal with an abusive parent but also in helping you bring in more information to the court. Which was invaluable. And, and I know that there are a lot of parents who aren't able to put their kids in therapy. And so I do see, you know, our journey with that as a huge blessing and I'm grateful for it. Um, when somebody is unable to put their, their children in therapy, because, you know, when we're dealing with a toxic person, it's a threat to them to have the children in therapy um, because you've got someone hopefully trained in these issues who could potentially see behind the mask. And, you know, for those parents, um, 
And during the times that I wasn't able to have my kids in counseling, it was invaluable for me to meet with a child therapist who could help me fill my toolbox and then go back and be that rock that my kids needed. So, you know, that's an option, even if you aren't able to put your kids in therapy. Great point. And it's important to get as much support and help in all the different ways. One thing I want to point out um, is that you do coaching yourself for people going through this, as well as train coaches to help people going through this type of you know, high conflict, dealing with a narcissistic divorce. Um, so I just want to point that out to people because I also believe very, very strongly in the value of having a, a support system that includes a coach. If you are going through a high conflict divorce or a divorce with a narcissist, it's an imperative. Yeah. I, I just want, I, I won't work in mediation with um, a cl with clients if they're, if we have a high conflict situation, unless the party who needs support has a coach, because it's so critical. Yeah, it, it, just is. it is because I see so many people going to their attorneys, expecting them to be their emotional support system or, you know, to, to really get in the weeds with them and they're not able to do that. And so, you know, an ideal team would be a skilled attorney, a therapist, and a divorce coach who, who really understands these dynamics. Yeah. I mean, it's critical. I always say first stop on your divorce journey, get a good coach yeah. and then build the rest of your team from there because you're going to do it from a place of empowerment and hopefully understanding and education with a plan moving forward. So I just want to, I'm always talking about my, my love of divorce coaches because I don't feel that there's enough support in the legal field for the coaching world. And, and I just, I, I think that's a mistake on the part of my colleagues. I feel like that's a, a common misconception is that too many too many other professionals involved in our our case the lawyer's mindset my case it's not our case it's our client's case but you know that is an issue so the, before we jump into I do want to talk about um some of the projects that I know that you've been working on or some of the the great work you've been doing but I also want to point out because I think this will also give people some hope so there's an, one last quote from the book um, it was then that I realized I was stronger. I could finally see right through Seth. I could almost predict his emails. I was no longer affected by his emails. In fact, I opened the email and only felt pity for Seth. I knew the sick high he received from believing he had successfully pushed my buttons. And I think it's so important for people to understand that there is power and your power when you are divorcing or dealing with a narcissist is understanding their patterns so that you can deal with their behaviors. You're never going to change them. Therapist told you that long ago. But once you understand, because they do very repetitive things, they do the same things over and over again. And once you understand it, that's where your power is. It's not in beating them or, or like the things that people come up with. It is understanding their patterns so that you can manage their behaviors. Yeah, I'm really big on profiling the person that you're up against, almost like the FBI profiles a criminal and gives us a full report what this person is like. And, and you know, that is very much what you have to do. And we can all talk in general terms about narcissism or sociopathy or whatever it is um, that you're up against. But they have their individual patterns and triggers and wounds that are what is driving them in this. Um, and so understanding, you know, I can predict from the beginning of November through the Christmas season um, in our in our case, that he is going to be, you know, just spinning and looking for any avenue to derail me or hurt me. Um, and because the holidays really seem to make him just kind of spiral. And so being aware of that. So when I see November 1st on the calendar, I'm like, okay, I know what's coming. And when it does, it's not, it doesn't catch you off guard. It, it loses the power. And, and that's the same with their communication. Um, I know birthdays are a big 
a big thing. You know, he always tried to derail my birthdays. And, and for example, in the book I talk about, he had been completely MIA for a year and a half, ordered to supervise visits. And after a year and a half, he comes back into the picture and wants to plan his first supervised visit on my 40th birthday. And and if that, you know, I find humor in it now, now that I'm able to reflect back on it, because it's so sad and it's so pathetic that that is his fuel. I, I can't imagine that living that type of life where your fuel is hurting people. And so predicting and profiling who you're up against is critical. And I assume that, you know, just hearing you just describe that so beautifully, I assume that's part of the work that you do with your clients yes. in coaching. So just imagine the the power and value of having someone help walk you through that. If I can just, you know, say that I wish I'd had that myself in dealing. I've had a few narcissists in my life. Um, I wish I'd had that that insight. I'm getting better at spotting them. But hey, folks, in, in my late 50s, I'm still running into them. So you never know. <laughs> Well, one thing I don't want to let you leave without talking about is that you have joined and and created an advocacy group called the National Safe Parents Organization. Um, And you have some of the top advocates in the country. Please tell us about that. I know you're making great strides, and I think this is important work. I want people to know about this. Yes. um, About a year ago, we started, some of the top advocates in the country started coming together, having regular meetings, talking about, you know, we're, we're all out there recreating the wheel, trying to educate, trying to raise awareness, some working in legislative change, and the power that we would have in coming together and creating an umbrella organization for the first time in, in the U.S., um, and that is the National Safe Parents Organization. And um, we have the, the expertise and guidance to lean on um, Joan Meyer and Danielle Pollock of the National Family Violence Law Center at the George Washington University. Um, they were recently successful in um, writing the language for Caden's Law, which just passed through with VAWA. And now we've all got a huge uh, job on our hands to take that and pass it state by state. And so the goal is to take the hard work that that they've done and now uh, replicate that at a state level um, because we all know how much it's needed and and that you know ultimately in these in this system, the children are the ones who are suffering. So I'm I'm very excited about uh, what we've created, the team behind it, um, truly the top top advocates in the country. Yeah, no, it's it's very impressive. I I will link to the website in the show notes along with all the uh, your other websites. But that this I encourage everyone to go take a look. There's a lot of information and a lot of ways that you can help. As yes. Tina just mentioned. Each state is going to have to move forward with this. We are in a time of advocacy in our world. We have so many things that need, you know, we need to be moving forward, not backwards on. And so all I'm going to say is please, you know, be active, t- take your beliefs and get out and vote, get out and advocate for what you believe in. This is the time to do that in, in our world. Um, and nothing's more important than our children. Um, you know, and that's really at the core. I just want to say a final word about the book, the bottom, the bottom line of your book and your journey. How are your children today? How are your daughters? They're amazing young ladies. They're 17 and 15 years old. They were two two and four when we started. And a big passion of theirs is to help other kids who are going following in their footsteps. And so they've actually recently launched their own business um, called Pink Fireworks. And they've created affirmation cards. I'll send you a, a, a pack of them. Um, but I love that. there are things like, I know my boundaries. I recognize red flags. And so teaching our kids at a young age 
um, what we didn't learn as young children, um, you know, and, and so it's, it's a way to educate them on these important topics without ever speaking poorly about their unhealthy parent, because I'm, you know, very big on that, you know, we should never, never speak poorly, but, um, but educating them on these important topics so that they can recognize it when they go out into the world. So I am so proud of my daughters um, for taking what they've been through and then wanting to help others. And so, yeah, they're, they're amazing. I, uh, one, one, uh, that is what I want people to hear just how well your daughters have come through this. But I think it's an indication. I mean, how powerful your, your, um, example has been for your daughters that they at their young, still young years have turned into advocates in a way for other children and, and helpmates for, for other children who are going through, we know, you know, this is hard for the adults going through it. It's beyond hard for the children who are going through it. And they had, they didn't choose this path. Uh, they were born into it. And, and so I love that. I'm, I will, I would love to have the cards. I, I will feature them on the website. What a wonderful resource. Um, well, Tina, you know, I don't want to leave. What's the best way to get in touch with you? I know you have a lot of resources on the website. Um, what would you like people to know on how to follow you? Uh, onemomsbattle.com is our website. We have online courses. You can connect with a divorce coach um, who's come through our program. And then the nationalsafeparents.org would be how to get involved in our advocacy efforts and join your state chapter um, to try to get Caden's Law passed state by state. So I encourage all of you to, you know, use that pain that you're going through or that you've been through as fuel to help us make changes because it's, it's going to take a village. It, it, it is going to, but we can do it. Yes. And I thank you for all that you are doing. I encourage again, everyone go get the updated book, the new release of the book, Divorcing a Narcissist, One Mom's Battle. Um, I'll also have links to that in the show notes because we haven't even, I mean, that was just a tiny smattering of the golden nuggets in this book. And then the story just continues. We haven't touched on your convicted pedophile brother-in-law. We haven't talked about your flying monkey narcissist in-law. I mean, there's so much more to your story that is beneficial in, in, in helping people to understand the, the paradigm of this. But Tina, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come and do this. But even more importantly, thank you for all that you're doing and for what you did for your daughters. You, you are the true uh, mama bear. You, you did it. Good for you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond. Thank you.